Hello and welcome back to Interpreting India. As the world looks to emerge from the shadow of the coronavirus pandemic, 2022 so far has been defined by precarious geopolitical relations, drastically shifting economic trends, and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host Shivani Mehta and this week we are discussing the evolution of the women peace and security agenda. Ever since its adoption at the UN Security Council in October 2000, the Women Peace and Security or also known as the WPS agenda has emerged as the landmark global framework promoting women's role in conflict resolution and achieving sustainable peace through its four pillars participation conflict prevention protection and relief and recovery the wps agenda aims to provide a holistic approach to international security since the adoption of the agenda 103 countries have adopted national action plans to enhance women's participation in the security domain at a domestic level regional action plans have also emerged as an effort to collaboratively implement the wps agenda however despite the domestic and regional efforts to implement the wps agenda there are normative and institutional constraints which impede the full realization of the agenda in this episode of interpreting india we discuss how the wps agenda has evolved since its adoption 22 years ago what is the significance of the agenda and how does it operate to achieve its goal how is the wps agenda being interpreted by countries with different contextual and political settings and finally what steps should india undertake to advance its approach towards the wps agenda joining us today to discuss this topic is dr somita basu dr somita basu is an assistant professor at the department of international relations at the south asian university in new delhi dr basu holds a phd in international politics from the university of wales She has worked extensively on feminist international relations and the UN Security Council resolutions on women, peace and security. Her recent publications include New Directions in Women, Peace and Security. She has also contributed to Gender Dimensions of the United Nations Security Council. some notes in view of india's eighth term and rutledge handbook of feminist peace research professor basu thank you so much for joining us today this episode is extremely special to me because we will be discussing the role of women in international security i'm very keen to understand and i'm sure a lot of our listeners would also like to know the sort of gender roles that apply in international security so i will begin with um the hallmark of uh, women's roles in security 
the women peace and security agenda uh, that was adopted in 2000 uh, by the United Nations Security Council. If you could tell us a bit about how this exactly promotes the role of women in international security and how does the agenda operate in order to accomplish that, the goal of equitable gender roles in international peace and security. Thank you. Um, and thank you for inviting to me to be a part of this conversation, which I certainly think is uh, very important. Um, so to begin with, um, I think it would be helpful for us to uh, set out that the WPS agenda recognizes that women are already present in matters of international peace and security. So they haven't been brought in through Resolution 1325. Um, and they are part of the agenda, not just as civilian victims of war, as they were seen earlier, but also as peacemakers, uh, negotiators, former combatants, and so on. Um, I think it might be helpful to add here that uh, Namibia, under whose presidency Resolution 1325 was adopted, their presidency of the Security Council, that is, had a particular interest in this participation aspect. Um, along with the UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations, as it was called at that time, they had hosted a workshop on gender mainstreaming in peacekeeping in May 2000. So this preceded the adoption of Resolution 1325, and it actually fed into the writing of 1325 as well. And Namibia's interest was partly related to the role that women had played in the UN Transition Assistance Group, or UNTAG, which was deployed in Namibia in 1989-90. So um, now in terms of the provisions of the resolution, of course, uh, there are um, several resolutions, but just to keep the response brief, uh, Resolution 1325, um, it calls for increased number of female peacekeepers, uh, getting more women to the negotiating table, and just generally ensure that women are represented at all levels of decision-making. And there's also a lot of focus on consulting with civil society, including women's organizations. You know, going back to the point that I started with, that um, it is also about recognizing that women are um, already there. So picking up where you left off, uh, the UN Security Council Resolution uh, 1325 that you mentioned has been around for 22 years now. So what what is the progress that you have observed the agenda has made in enhancing, like you said, women's participation uh, in peacemaking and peace building? And I ask you this because there is a study from 2016 uh, that found that 36 UN Security Council resolutions pertaining to Iraq uh, have been adopted since the year 2000, but only six of them contain language related to the WPS agenda. Okay. So... Um... Actually, this because this is about data, I think it'd be very helpful if um, I could add to um, you know the study that you just cited to uh, point um, our listeners today to uh, some 
uh, other sources that they could uh, check uh, in order to get more information on this. Uh, so there's, of course, the UN Women uh, website. There is the there are the pages relating to gender um, and peace support operations. Um, also, Peace Women uh, Project of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And Will was involved in the advocacy which led to the passage of uh, the resolution as well. That is a great resource. As well as in terms of kind of more academic um, resources, there are now Women, Peace and Security and Gender, Peace and Security Centers at the London School of Economics uh, in England, Monash University in Australia and Georgetown University in uh, the United States. So uh, lots of places where, um, because there is a lot of data on this um, and, you know, I it, it would be somewhat overwhelming to capture everything possible. Um, still, uh, and I'll now refer to some UN women data in terms of uh, women in um, UN field operations. Um, so, for instance, uh, UN women tells us that as of February 2021, women comprise 48% of all heads and deputy heads of mission, which is um, already an increase from 20% in 2015. So that's pretty impressive. Um, then uh, taking on something which uh, relates to um, women, uniformed women in peace operations, and I know we'll return to this point, but I think it's still helpful because um, as, um, as part of um, resolution... Uh, 2242, the UN Security Council had actually uh, called for a greater number of uniformed women in peace operations, in fact, at different levels of decision-making as well. So there is a target um, uh, of uh, that is to be reached by 2028. And this particular data is um, from Action for Peacekeeping. Um, and we see... Um, um, again, I encourage the listeners to go and look at the, the, these really interesting infographics that uh, especially in uh, policing, uh, the numbers have, you know, the targets appear to be have uh, the, the targets have been reached uh, on a professional force that headquarters, professional force in the field, uh, in the military part as well. There has been an increase, um, of course, as far as um these uh, uh, negotiators are concerned. I think there it is uh, uh, somewhat uh, disappointing because, again, now going back to UN women, between 1992 and 2019, um, so women were uh, just 13% on an average, 13% of negotiators. And, um, and in fact, uh, 7 out of 10 uh, peace processes, every 10 peace processes, did not actually include women mediators or women signatories. So there is both the good, um, you know, something to celebrate, but then uh, quite a few disappointments as well. Um, and I'll just um, uh, end by saying before we drown in all this data is that, of course, there are other pillars of the uh, women, peace and security agenda as well, which are protection, uh, prevention, which relates to conflict prevention and relief and recovery. And in all of these pillars, you know, we can go one by one. And again, you know, uh, the sources that I've mentioned would be useful. Um, we see uh, we see certain, you know, certain progress. Uh, so that was the next question I was coming to another sort of 
criticism leveled against the WPS is that it's very narrowly defined and all it does is promote female presence on the te- table but doesn't necessarily go beyond that how would you measure progress when it comes to the WPS and also when the problem statement for instance is so contextual how is a resolution translated into various fields of practice okay so let me take the first part first and um, uh, which relates to how do we sort of measure progress and then we'll come to the context specific aspect so um resolution 1889 uh, that uh, the uh, that call which is one of the wps resolutions that called for the development of global indicators uh, which would then tell us whether you know the you know to what extent to measure the progress of the agenda so there are uh, 26 uh, such quantitative and qualitative indicators uh, which are you know again there's there's you'd find a lot of um, studies on this which have used these indicators to then uh, consider WPS uh, progress of WPS in different parts of the world um, that said I mean your point about it being narrow um, with which you started the question um, Yes, there's a lot of literature on this that, you know, for instance, certainly 1325 or even the later resolutions, they don't quite really fundamentally challenge what international peace and security is about. And critics would also say that this is because here we are, you know, the the institutional home is the Security Council. Um, But then in the way the, the WPS agenda has been locally adapted in, in many contexts. I think that gives us a room to gives us the room to kind of consider it more broadly. Um, there is a third point I want to make before I uh, you know I, I return to the, the question about uh, context specific um, implementation, which is that um, it is no longer about women, even though the title of the resolution is uh, Women, Peace and Security. Um, and because there is reference to men and boys as well. And uh, it started out, uh, so there are in both aspects that men and boys as kind of partners and allies in the WPS agenda, but also that um, to, to recognize that there is sexual violence against men and boys um, uh, during armed conflicts as well. Of course, we can add further and say that the intersectional perspective is missing here to sort of recognize that, you know, women, girls, men and boys are not just that. And there are many identities associated with, um, you know, the experience that they have in, in a conflict zone. Um, but I suppose it is it is a work in progress. Um, now, coming to the point about um, context specific um, implementation. So, um, I mean, as I said, they are uh, open-ended enough that they can be um, uh, certainly in the national action plans or even the regional action plans, they can be um, adapted as per the kind of 
local requirements. So, for instance, one of the things that we see uh, is that uh, in, in, in some of the NAPs in, in Africa, uh, that there is a link between security and development, which earlier did not really exist in the WPS agenda. Uh, because, of course, some of the more traditional Security Council members were really against expanding the scope of what peace and security might mean. So countries like Russia and China were very clear that, look, you know, socioeconomic issues, it's the General Assembly or the ECOSOC that should be discussing this. And overall, gender should be discussed there. But within the Security Council, in the later uh in the in the uh, the WPS this sort of sister WPS resolutions, and also in these various other um, contexts, uh, the uh, the uh, the scope of the agenda has really been broadened. Uh, so there has been a real attempt in different parts of the world to link into issues of uh, climate change, disaster management, um, whichever is 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 pertinent in that part or whichever issue is pertinent in that part of the world. So if, if I'm correct in understanding, the national action plans are essentially toolkits for the government to bring about equal gender participation, if I can say that, uh, in security matters. And they have, uh, they are broad enough, like you said, open-ended enough to be adopted uh, in a manner that is context-specific. Uh, so I think this would be a good time to now move to South Asia. Um, in just the last two years, um, there's been a coup in Myanmar um, and the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. And like you said, there is criticism that the WPS is institutionalized in the Security Council, which is a sort of Western approach uh, to thinking about security or is more likely to be inclined to a Western perspective. So what is the scope for the national action plans in South Asia, as well as the WPS broadly. Okay. So if it's all right, I'll take a few minutes to um, kind of respond to this charge about the uh, WPS agenda being uh, Western-centric um, and then take another minute or two to just... Um, uh, speak a little bit more uh, on the national action plans and give us uh, the uh, the global picture of what the national action plans look like, and then finally move on to look at the South Asian um, context. So, I mean, you absolutely rightly point out that uh, there is a lot of this um, criticism of um, the WPS agenda basically being something that is driven by countries in the global north and also um, that it's um, that it can even be used as an excuse for uh, military interventions in different parts of the world. I mean, we certainly saw that in Afghanistan that um, when support for um, 
the um, the military presence in Afghanistan started going down, and then we suddenly heard a lot about women's rights and so on. So there is there are all these issues, and of course the Security Council has its you know own image of being undemocratic and etc. Uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, but um, so I, I kind of get where the critics are coming from. Um, also because they have the material power um, to to really push the agenda um, on issues that they would like to, so it can become quite donor driven. Um, many of the headquarters are located um, in the global. It's a, uh, um, and, and powerful NGOs, they are located in the global north as well. But just to say that I, I, I really think it is a lot more complicated than that. Even when 1325 was adopted, uh, it the so A, the civil society was very active. And this is not just civil society in the global north, but civil society from across the world. The learnings that we have about what the women, peace and security agenda even is, that we need to, you know, ask the question of where are the women that comes from uh, women's rights advocacy from across the world. So as Nolan, uh, Nolan Heiser of um, the United Nations had said, the um, 1325 had a kind of global constituency. And even within the Security Council, in terms of the countries that were involved in um the uh, the adoption of the uh, of thirteen twenty five and the resolutions later as well. Well, in two thousand, the uh, Jamaica, Namibia, and Bangladesh were also on the UN Security Council, and they were very involved. In fact, Jamaica had the only female permanent representative on the council at that time. Um, and later, also we have Vietnam and Azerbaijan that have pushed for uh, WPS resolutions. Um, and in fact, in 2020, uh, re- uh, there was a resolution uh, that was adopted uh, during the presidency of Indonesia, which was not called, which was not a WPS agenda. It was a peacekeeping um, uh, resolution, but it was on women on, in peacekeeping. So we have countries from the global south also that have contributed. And I know that I've um, gone on for a while uh, in, in responding to this, but um it's, I think it's important to recognize um, all that has gone into this agenda. And I think uh, while there are a whole lot of structural constraints, uh, I think to say that it is Western-centric, which is a very common kind of allegation against the WPS agenda, it doesn't fully capture the politics that underlies it. Now, coming to the national action plans, uh, let me use some data from the Peace Women website, which is which is my favorite, I confess. So it um, so as per the most uh, the, as per the recent update, um, 103 UN member states uh, now have national action plans. So that is 53 percent. And again, I mean, on the one hand, that's you know that's just a little more than 50 percent, but it's still pretty impressive. Um, and, uh, when we see this move towards the adoption of national action plans, uh, which started in 2005, there, we find that there are two types of countries that adapted, um, that adopted, um, uh, national action plans. One, um, that, and these were usually countries in the global North that provided international assistance in conflict zones. 
And then there were those countries that were emerging out of conflicts. And we would usually find that the first set of countries in the global north, their national action plans were about what they should be doing internationally in you know, particular areas that they had identified. Whereas those, uh, the conflict-affected countries, which were usually in the global south, theirs were more inward-oriented. And as I said, some of these countries, they, they linked uh, WPS with issues of development because that was very important to them uh, at that point of time. Um, now, of course, since then, there has been a real proliferation of national action plans, in considering there are one or three now. Um, and they do not necessarily fall in either of these uh, uh, these categories. Um, uh, but what we find is that uh, overall, uh, just to wrap this, this part up, that uh, national action plans have been uh, a very, as you mentioned as well, they have been very important toolkits, uh, not necessarily successful always, uh, but they're seen as these important toolkits for implementation. And the UN Security Council has been quite clear that the member states have to really take ownership of the WPS agenda and the national action plans are a part of this. So coming to the uh, national action plans that we have in South Asia, there are three countries that have uh, adopted national action plans in the region. And these are Nepal, which was uh, 2011. The Afghan national action plan was adopted in 2015. And the Bangladesh one is fairly recent, um, and this is 20, uh, 2019, sorry. Um, now, these, the, the, the Nepali National Action Plan and the Bangladeshi National Action Plan, uh, they involved a lot of civil society participation. Um, and the process was generally participatory. And in fact, the, the Nepal one, except especially uh, because um, it, the Nepal one has been around for a, a fair while. So there are quite a few studies on that as well. So the whole process by which the Nepalese National Action Plan came about is really celebrated. Um, and another point to note here is that uh, the, the Nepalese National Action Plan was the second one in Asia uh, very soon after Philippines. Uh, so they really took, uh, the, uh, took a lead on this. Um, the Afghan National Action Plan... Um, based on reports, is understood to have been more of a top-down approach as far as the writing of the resolution is, is concerned. As far as the implementation of the National Action Plans are concer is concerned, it is perhaps too soon to speak on Bangladesh, but as far as Nepal and Afghanistan, unfortunately, both are concerned, um, there is a lot of criticism um, on um, in this regard. Uh, so so that that is unfortunate. That I was while you were speaking, I was also thinking about how this would be the time to um, essentially test the Afghan national action plan to see whether structurally and if it can be implemented to actually bring about an improvement with like you said, I think it's too soon to call it one way or another. And um, there's just no evidence at this point to suggest uh, an outcome. Uh, you spoke at length about Nepal. 
uh, about its sort of, in the sense, being a torchbearer of the national action plans in South Asia. Um, did any of that sort of overflow into India? And uh, sort of wh what is India's response to the WPS uh, been so far? Right. So as far as, let me take the second question first uh, with regard to India's response uh, to the WPS agenda. I think it is safe to say that it has been somewhat outward oriented in that India has been um, reasonably active in its own areas of interest um, when it comes to, um, to engaging with WPS. So of course, the most uh, well-known example of this is um, when uh, is 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 when India sent the all-female formed police unit to Liberia in 2007. So this is the first time that uh, an all-female formed police unit had been sent, and um, they uh, uh, they had a very the the contingent there uh, uh, in in Liberia as part of the UN mission in Liberia. Um, their work was very uh, well appreciated, uh, not only by the uh, international community, but uh, by the government and the people of Liberia. And I think that is very, very important. So that's first. And relatedly, um, India has also provided agenda training for uh, peacekeepers at the Center for UN Peacekeeping in uh, New Delhi. Um, so, as you can see, there is a, a, a common theme to all of this, that uh, one of the key areas of focus has been uh, peacekeeping. Um, so, uh, further on this, uh, India in 2016 contributed uh, 100,000 US dollars to um, a UN Trust Fund for victims of sexual exploitation and abuse. A couple of years later, it made a donation of uh, about um, 300,000 US dollars to the UN Department of Field Support, uh, which was for the um, Pipeline to Peacekeeping Command Program. And this related to issues of conduct and discipline, which included um, um, issues relating to sexual exploitation and abuse. Uh, India has also, uh, within the Security Council, uh, co-sponsored three women peace and security resolutions during the period 2009-2010. And um, I don't think it's a coincidence that this was just prior to its seventh term um, as the as an elected uh, council member uh, in, in 2011, uh, the 2011-2012 the term. Um, then it also during during this term it also hosted uh, 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 an open meeting it's, uh, on uh, WPS, which is quite notable, right? Because of course, um, when you hold the presidency of the Security Council, um, the member state gets to decide which themes to focus on, and the fact that one of those themes was women, peace, and security is is notable. Um, and the other uh, uh, other area in which um, um, India has made some contributions as far as uh, the discourse at the Security Council is concerned uh, is um, uh, is uh, relates to counterterrorism. So there also um, India has been 
uh, part of um, those uh, uh, the those who have uh, talked about bringing together the WPS agenda um, and the countering violent extremism agenda. So we can see that even though we don't hear about it very much, um, India has, in fact, made some contributions. So it's very clear that it is outward oriented. Uh, India does not really speak of the of WPS in its domestic context. Um, and again, on that count, the government is quite clear because it doesn't recognize any armed conflicts within the country because, uh, of course, the Ministry of Home Affairs uh, refers to uh, certain areas in the country as disturbed areas. So officially, there are no armed, armed conflicts, and therefore the WPS agenda seemingly does not apply. Um, but um, there is the uh, the CEDAW general recommendation number thirty, which suggests that well, you could still talk about you know CEDAW related issues in areas of armed conflicts. I think that is one way of. Um, bringing uh, the WPS in spirit, uh, if not in words, um, into the country. Um, but going back to something you said earlier about whether, you know, Nepal's torch-bearing role has uh, shown some light in the Indian context as well. I think, I think on that, I mean, those of us who follow um, women and uh, their role in advocacy for peace or their critique of militarization in the region, we know that there is a lot of solidarity between uh, these actors in the region at the level of civil society. So it is not so much, um, you know, it, it's not a sort of one-way street. Uh, there is a lot of solidarity between all the advocates in different countries because they recognize that there are certain shared issues relating to peace and security. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, a number of um, advocates from the region have also contributed to the global discourse on the women, peace and security agenda. Though when it's, and, and, and they learn from each other. So I'm sure that, um, um, you know, advocates in India would learn from the Nepal case and, and vice versa. Um, but as far as the Indian civil society is concerned, I mean, I mentioned earlier that um, the, um, the, that the uh, government really does not speak of the WPS agenda in its domestic context. There's a lot of difference within the civil society in this regard as well. Um, and, and I can follow up. On, on that later. I'm really glad that uh, the WPS is part of India's narrative to the international community, uh, even though we don't hear much about it within the country. But like you said, there is some kind of, within the advocacy and civil society groups, there is a difference in how they approach these issues. So what is the scope for India to formulate, build, and implement a national action plan? Right. So to be honest, I myself am quite ambivalent about India having a national action plan. Because while maps are, of course, uh, useful, uh, these do not guarantee effective implementation of the WPS agenda, as we have seen in our own region as well. Um, and 
there is evidence from other parts of the world that suggests the same. This is not taking away from the importance of uh, NAPs or indeed regional action plans as well, but this is to say that it, there are failures as well. And so this does not, a national action plan doesn't necessarily need to be the way forward in, in all cases. And, you know, going back to one of the sort of data points that I mentioned that, you know, 53% of total UN uh, member states having NAPs does also mean that 47% of UN member states don't have it. So while India is in minority, it's a pretty large minority. Um, now, um, as far as the WPS agenda more broadly is concerned in terms of using the WPS agenda to talk about issues of participation, protection, very importantly, conflict prevention as well, um, and relief and recovery, um, we find that even within the civil society, there are, as I you know, mentioned in response to your previous question, there's a lot of difference, and I can build on that. So um, uh, I've been studying this for a while, and uh, I, I find that there are three broad categories of engagement with the WPS agenda uh, within the sort of Indian feminist peace community. So there are those who have um, primarily been critical of the agenda because, of course, they're critical of the UN Security Council and the kind of militarized policies that it upholds and the, the dominance of the global north um, uh, countries as well. Um, then there are those who... Uh, have sought to uh, really highlight the association of the WPS agenda with the with transnational feminist peace advocacy, and they have called for a bottom up approach to the implementation of the uh, WPS agenda. So you know, at the civil so, you know set aside a national action plan, could we have um, a transnational people's action plan? Um, and because it's a very specific term, I should really attribute to those who came up with this, which would be uh, Professor Asha Hans and Professor Betty Reardon. Um, and then there are there was there was a very uh, small section of uh, this community which had also called upon uh, the government to adopt a national action plan. So they had put together a draft national action plan, um, submitted it to the government, but as we know, nothing much uh, came of it. So I think it's kind of interesting to note that the, within the um, within those who actually take uh, the gender dimensions of peace and security quite seriously, there are a lot of differences as well. But I think they, they would all agree, generally speaking, that we need more women's participation at all levels of decision-making or that women's rights need to be upheld um, or that uh, we need to work towards demilitarization or that if we are um, uh, considering uh, in, 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 in parts of the country where there needs to be some uh, demobilization and reintegration of uh, former soldiers, then we need to bring in a gender perspective to that. So we don't necessarily need to call it women, peace and security. And again, though, you know, uh, many of the feminist peace advocates would say that a 
all this is already supported by what's in the Indian constitution. And second, that we have more inclusive policies such as CEDAW, which can be used for the same purposes. So our focus really needs to be, uh, it, it, we don't necessarily need to be uh, caught up um, talking about NAPS, but to make sure that the kind of issues that come up in the WPS agenda, those are addressed at the domestic level as well. And if I may add one more point to this, um, in the last couple of years, there's been uh, this emerging discussion on the possibility of India developing a feminist or um, uh, because sometimes the F word is not very welcome, possibly a gender sensitive uh, foreign policy. Um, and something like that might also give impetus in pushing forward the provisions of the WPS agenda. Um, because, I mean, again, when we study uh, or, or feminists who study um, who are talking about uh, a gender sensitive foreign policy, uh, one of the issues that has come up is that, well, that kind of foreign policy also needs to be aligned with domestic, polit uh, domestic policies. So that would be um, uh, another, uh, uh, another uh, arena in which um, the, the provisions of uh, the WPS agenda could be cons uh, uh, could be uh, uh, considered. Uh, thank you so much. I hope that uh, the people who can make this happen uh, have have heard you and uh, take some of your advice. Uh, this was a very insightful conversation. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me here. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.